0: Does it seem like we're getting a little more impatient? Well, if you think yes, then you would be correct. They recently did a study of 2,000 people to see what they uh, were impatient about. And according to these 2,000 people, it took an average of 22 seconds to express their Frustration, impatience, if their TV or their computer doesn't start streaming the movie properly. 22 seconds and they're off. Um, Threshold for web pages to load, only 16 seconds and then they're gone. Uh, For the light to change, uh, traffic is a big patience issue. 25 seconds and then we're impatient of the light. And then uh, 28 seconds, for water to boil before they boil over. That's kind of strange, but anyway, I remember back when the, they didn't even have microwaves and, that was, and, the TV, and the microwaves that we did get, they're about as big as a giant TV, but anyway. Uh, for your phone to charge, 11 minutes. And then uh, the number one impatience causer, that would be waiting in line. In fact, waiting in line has become such a bugaboo to people, they actually have a science about that. It's the science of queuing. And now they're experimenting uh, with uh, a single line, like for example, the grocery store, and you know how it is. You wait in the line here, and then you look over there. I always pick the wrong line. I mean, every time, 99% of the time, I pick the wrong line. It's the slowest line. And so they've, and I jump over there, and then it's and get impatient. So now they decided we'll have one line, and then you just wait until the teller or checker comes open, and you go over there. And so it's actually a, quite a science now, and that is the science of queuing. But I will tell you in the Bible... Our God is a patient God. But with God he is not patient with circumstances. And he's not patient with things that happen. And there's a reason for that because God already knows everything from beginning to end. He doesn't have to exercise patience because he knows what's going to happen. But when the Bible talks about his long suffering and his patience, what God is referring to is his feeling towards people. God is long suffering towards humans. And I believe that we can learn a lot about maintaining a peaceful spirit in our lives in the job place and the home front from understanding this wonderful attribute of God. God never has ever lost his patience with any person. Now, for sure we do. Even little children can lose their patience. I heard about a four-year-old who was staying with his grandma, and he said, Grandma, I want unch. She said, you want what? I want unch. She said, you mean I want lunch? Yes, I want unch. Grandma said, no, honey, I'm not going to give it until you say it correctly. What do you want? I want unch. She said, now say it right. What do you want? Finally, he has looked at her in exasperation. He said, Grandma, read my ips. <laughs> and, uh, and so this morning, read my ips, folks. God is a long-suffering God, and he cares about us. I'm glad that he does. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us and that you uh, never lose your patience with us. I'm amazed. And Lord, I'm grateful for this amazing attribute. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In the Old Testament, the word for long-suffering is the word patience or slow to anger. Aren't we glad this morning for God's divine restraint? The New Testament word is a different word, as you might imagine. It is the Greek word makrothumio. If you know anything about those suffixes or prefixes in the Greek language, as in Latin, Macro, meaning big or large, big picture, the macro picture. Thumio, as you might imagine, has to do with thermometer, uh, heat. And so then it would be that God takes a big or a long time to boil. I'm glad that he does. It's wonderful to know that our God never boils over in impatience. And as many as bonehead things that I've done in my life, I say amen and amen that I serve Uh, God who is patient. He is not hot-headed. All right, let's go to 2 Peter, if you would please. Chapter 3. Now you can know that Peter is speaking to the churches basically at this point in Asia, minor, and they are struggling. They're being persecuted. I never have quite understood why people are upset because people love Jesus and they want to live by the Bible. I just can't figure out why that just makes some people so crazy. But they were suffering 2,000 years ago, and we suffer still today. People don't like Bible-loving, Jesus-honoring Christians. It's just crazy. But they were having a tough time. It was really tough. In fact, some were losing their jobs. These were difficult days for those Christians. And adding to it, there was some weird concepts that were stuck in the brain from some of these people there were these people running around the churches that were saying, what you need to have is a big knowledge, a a different knowledge. You need to know things. And they were called knowers or Gnostics. And that's why in 2 Peter, so often the key word is knowledge. And here, the great uh, apostle is saying, look, you need knowledge, all right. But you don't need this uh, silly, stinking thinking that the world has, or even these Christians who are off base. You need the thinking from the Word of God. You need to have Bible thinking. And so then he lays out how the future is going to play out. That's a good idea. I want to kind of know how things are going to happen. And so that's what he says. He's all right. Let me give you then, I want to give you a sense of how God's going to make all this happen. But the overriding theme of this part of 2 Peter chapter 3 is that in light of what's going to happen and in all as we see all the things begin to transpire, know this, that God is a patient God. He's long-suffering. And so in this passage, just wonderfully, I think we see four wonderful qualities of God's patience. And if you're following along, if you're want to get your app there there's actually the notes there you can go online and get that or you can uh, just write them down as we go four qualities of God's patience number 1 God's patient characterizes his wonderful love he's loving but he is a patient loving god now read with me if you would please verse 1 and 2 of second peter 3 all right let's read it together out loud ready begin this second epistle Beloved, All right. 2 Peter 3 and verse 1. You got it? How come you're not doing it? All right. Come on. All right. Am I the only one here? All right. Come on now. Am I speaking? This is a real crowd. Okay, here we go. Um, I'm speaking online. You're thinking no one's here, but there you are. All right. Are we going to say it? Are going to get involved? Okay, thank you. Verse number 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. In both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of the apostles, our Lord and Savior. All right, look at that little part there in verse number one. This epi- this second epistle, beloved, beloved. I love you folks. God, the Holy Spirit is telling them and Peter is saying that I love you folks. That's why I'm writing to you. I want to stir up your minds. Verse two, that you might be mindful of this things that are going to be happening and in days to come. I want to give you an overview. It's kind of a good plan. Sometimes parents, you know, we have a child and we're going to go on a little Um, trip, or we're going to go somewhere, and you kind of lay it out for them, kind of a good way to help discipline, you know, you kind of give them a warning, all right, in about 30 minutes, we're going to get ready, but uh, just give them a little heads up, that's what God's doing here, he's giving people a heads up, then in verse 80 says again, beloved, be not ignorant, God here is expressing his great love for mankind and it manifests itself how? Patience. You love somebody, you're patient. God's special affection, his tenderness, as he calls us his beloved. Us, us thick-headed people, he calls us his beloved. Why God would do that, it's amazing to me, but it's because he has agape love. If you've been in church at all, you know in the New Testament there are three words for the word love. Uh, there is phileo, which means friendship love. There is eros, which is uh, short for what well, we get our word erotic, but it just means uh, uh, a, uh, a sensual or a, uh, a physical love. And then there is agape love, which is a God-like love. In 1 Corinthians 13, God describes agape love. It is truly one of the most beautiful Chapters in all of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But I want to point out some things that may have, perhaps you've never seen in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's go to verse 4. Now, the Old English uses the word charity for the word love. Today, when we say the word charity, we might say, you know, giving to somebody. I don't want charity, you know, but that's not what the Bible means. It is the Greek word agape, it means love. So it says, two things love suffers long and is kind. And that is that God defines love by patience. I read of a man who didn't help his loving marriage out very much because after his wife told him she was losing her patience with him, he offered to help her find it. (laughs) But anyway, um, so God is uh, offering here to let us know all about his genuine love. Now, as you look at these verses, you need to understand that God organizes it in a very interesting way. In the Greek language, if you were to go there, you could maybe get your strongs and out and get out your lexicon. And you would notice that before the word love there, there's a a little uh, verb uh, or whatever they call it, uh, conjunction or something. But anyway, it is the love. So verse four, it says, the love suffers long and the love is kind. And then that little phrase, the love, is not repeated again until verse eight. And so actually then what God is saying is that if you wanted to define love, the love, the agape love would be defined in two ways, patience and kindness. That's how you define agape love. That's what it is. Now, what it is not is following in the next verses. Eight negatives after that. It is not this, it is not this, and it is not this. But if you want to know what it is, it is patience and kindness. Therefore, if I wanted to display agape love, the first and foremost way is to display patience with people. Because long-suffering with people is godly. Notice what he says. God's patience then could be defined by this negative. It's not envious. God is never jealous of us. He's not jealous of our good looks. (laughs) He's not jealous of our athletic ability or lack thereof. He is not jealous of our coolness. Brad Pitt, famous Hollywood A-lister, said this, God is envious of us because we're mortal. Well. I think Mr. Pitt may have gotten beaned with one too many money balls, but uh, God is not jealous of people. He is a loving God. Notice what it says, charity vaunteth not itself, meaning that it is not selfish. It's not self-seeking. God is never out for himself. That would characterize patience then. So God's patience is what characterizes his wonderful love. I'll say that again. God's patience is the outgrowth of God's love. Because God loves us, he's patient with us. We live in a twisted world, as you know. We live in a world today where pretty much everything holy is substituted by something that is evil. In the book of Isaiah, it says, woe unto them. The prophet cried out that that there was a day coming when they will call evil good and good evil. Friends, that day is now. We have dark so often substituted dark for light and evil for good. We live in a twisted world where sins have become rights and iniquities have become virtues. Where evil is considered personal freedom. Now there are a lot of things we could say here but i think there's one thing that serves us well as we look at this passage and that is this that we live in a culture today where oftentimes dubbed as a cancel culture which really just means anger at something that they don't like anger then has become a right in fact not only a right it's actually even become a responsibility if somebody is offended in any way a vicious kind of hostility, which is seen as virtue, is, comes pouring forth. Impatience? No. We need to be angry. We need to fight, as Maxine Waters say. We need to get out there and fight for this. Well, I will tell you, that is exactly the opposite of God. Listen to me. God is offended by humans all the time every day, every conceivable way, God is always offended by the human race. We drink his water. We breathe his air. You say, how do we know it's his water? Did any human make it? It's his water. Air. We didn't make it. These scientists didn't make it. God made air. We breathe his air. We enjoy the food that he placed here. Now we may Alter it and change it, but it is His creation. We enjoy creation sights and sounds, and for the most part, the human race hardly tips a hat to a God, such a loving God as that. Now, that's why I say His patience is amazing. You may re- remember in the book of Genesis that God told Adam, If you eat of this tree, which I told you not to, you will surely die. And he did, and Eve did as well. When they did that, God's pronouncement of death was stayed. Surprisingly, in Adam's case, he lived 930 years after that. He lived 900 years after God told him he would kill him if he ate that tree. I would say that's a patient God. God is a patient God. Now, true, if you want to speak theologically, man died on the inside immediately. His spirit died. But the fact is, God's amazing, loving patience with sinners is incredible. No wonder Paul said about God, when you pray... Pray to him by his title, patient God. Have you ever seen that? Look at Romans chapter 15 and verse five. Now the God of patience and encouragement, consolation, grants you to be like-minded towards one another according to Jesus Christ. Folks, when you're in your knees, when you're in your prayer time, say, oh, patient God. Oh, patient God, help me to have patience. Number two, the fourth, second quality of God's patience. Not only is God patient as characterized his wonderful love, but his patience controls his sovereign plan. Some people would ask, uh, are you saying that everything, pastor, that goes on in this world is according to his sovereign plan? Yes, uh, in one sense. That is, uh, God uses everything for his honor and glory. All the goings on of mankind, all the matters of humanity are part of God's sovereign plan. It may not seem like it, but that's because God is long suffering by nature. He doesn't just come down the very second somebody does something evil. God is long suffering. Now God marks it down and God will hold us accountable but, and that's what this whole passage is about. In fact, let's go through it. Let's look at verse 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, mockers. Mockers are having a heyday today. The liberal media like CNN and Washington Post, they are just mockers. Walking after their own lusts. They interpret everything, every experience, every event, by their own limited worldview. They say that a fly, you know, the little things that fly around. They say that a fly forms a memory of a location that it's headed for. And a fly retains that memory for approximately four seconds. That means that If up to three seconds, it has to avert where it was planning to go, it could still remember where it was planning to go. Not sure how they figured that out, but that a fly has a memory of four seconds. After that, they don't have any memory. Folks, I think you would agree that to God, we're like those little flies. Our perception is so limited we have this uh, idea of what the world and what's going on. And God said, you don't even have a clue because you're walking after your own lust and you're like a little fly. You don't understand what an infinite God sees. Look at verse number four. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? They taunt Christians. They taunt them All you doom and gloom people, all you conspiracy right-wingers out there talking about this and that. Why, just, uh, it never happens and all these prophets always saying this and that. It doesn't change. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, (laughs) really. So these people, somehow magically knew what had happened for the last 4,000 years. This was 2,000 years ago. So 2,000 years ago, they, had not, they knew everything that happened in every country, by every person, and somehow they made the judgment that everything's the same since creation. Now, the fact is just because mankind has no historical record, or whether they do or whether they don't, doesn't mean that it didn't happen. and doesn't mean that things haven't changed. In fact, really, the only real history goes back to Noah. And that's what God is saying here in verse number five. For this, they are willingly ignorant. They conveniently look over things that stare them in the face. When I was a little guy, I used to love watching the Three Stooges, it was great. I loved the Three Stooges and I remember one time, Curly, you know, the bald headed guy, Old Curly was there, and he was he was yelling and hollering and crying, and he was saying, "I can't see, I can't see." And and Larry always looked at him and said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "You got your eyes closed." And uh, Curly said, "Oh yeah." But anyway. Um, That reminds me of the the Three Stooges is kind of the way the world is today. I can't see. I can't see. Well, if you'd open your eyes, you'd see. They are willingly ignorant. They're part of the Three Stooges. That by the Word of God and the heavens of old, the earth standing out of the water, all you have to do is go anywhere in this earth and you'll see the thumbprint of God in the deluge, in the Noah's flood. How do you think this big old valley got here? All this beautiful soil that settled. It just washed off of Mount Whitney and washed off of here and there. And settled here. I mean, we've got stuff in this valley that probably floated over from uh, Asia. And uh, from Africa. People say, well, we, there's signs of, you know, uh, Africa here. Well, it just floated over in the, in the flood. I mean, come on now. Verse 6. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished god said the flood is a very clear mechanism and you can see that the world has changed verse 7 but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store but just don't imagine that that's not going to happen again now maybe not a flood god's promised not to do it by a flood but this time a different kind of a flood a fiery flood reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition against ungodly men. Paul, or excuse me, Peter said the conditions today are like dry kindling, getting more dry every day. You talk about a California famine and all these uh, uh, woods that we have around here getting dry and one little spark. That's what God is saying. God is saying this earth is like dry tender. And I mean, it is It is ready to explode. Verse 8, but beloved, be not ignorant. (laughs) you got to love those two phrases. I love you, but don't be an ignoramus. I love you. There are signs everywhere. (laughs) Open your eyes, Curly, of this one thing. That one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. God is moving the pieces of this world like a divine chessboard. When I was younger, I played chess a bit. I tried. I uh, loved it, loved the strategy, but oh, I don't just, it got so, uh, it, I just was frustrated, impatient with the process. I feel like the guy who said, I finally defeated a chess grandmaster in three moves. I stood up. Picked up a chair and I hit him with it. (laughs) But anyway, um, now I got to admit, I'm fascinated by people who do chess. They don't think just because my problem was I was just, they would move and I'd say, okay, I'll do that. But you can't play chess like that. You got to be thinking three, four, ten moves ahead. That's what God is doing, folks. God is the ultimate chess master. He is a sovereign master moving people. 10, 20 steps in advance, and that's what God is doing. Look what God said in Romans chapter 9. Thank God for the wonderful Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit gave him this classic example, kind of like Jeremiah, who God said, go to the potter's house, Jeremiah. Go to the potter's house. I saw a church with a name like that the other day. I thought, man, that's a great name, the potter's house. Well, that's what God uses here as an illustration in Romans chapter 9. Now, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much there's that word again long suffering God suffers lost people very very long they are vessels of wrath fitted to destruction what is a vessel it's a pot and he said and he's just bringing up an illustration. And if you've ever seen pottery workers, it is just fascinating and frankly, it's not changed a lot in all these years. One of the oldest and uh, crafts and jobs, they'll take some clay, it has to have the right amount of moisture, it has to be the right type of uh, dirt basically, but they put it on a wheel, and either kick the bottom with their foot or now they use an electric uh, motor, but uh, they put it on there And then they form it with their hands, they pull it up, they thin the walls, they'll even use a little instrument to take the impurities out, and then they'll craft it, they'll cut it. Folks, that's what God is saying, that God is working with people to the very end. But if that vessel refuses to be molded by the hands of the master, there is no hope but to throw that pot away. And when a pot just refuses, it's too usually it means it's been too dry. That's the most common reason. And God calls his word water. And when people refuse the water of the word and they become unpliable and they just aren't able, God finally has to say, well, that's it. But notice what the point is of that is. That God doesn't, in his foreknowledge, he knows which of those pots are going to Receive him or which ones don't. But God doesn't just throw them away when it's still a lump. He works with a lost person their entire life until their last breath, until the last beat of their heart. God gives every lost person an opportunity to be saved. And then finally, if they refuse, then God makes them a vessel of his wrath. That's why one of the Puritan writers reminded us that it took God only six days to create the world. But think about it. God took seven days to destroy Jericho. God is patient. You remember what God told the prophet about evil Jezebel? I mean, this woman, there's a few uh, Jezebels in the public arena right now I think I could name, but I will tell you that God said to the prophet, he said, I gave Jezebel space to repent. I gave her space. I gave her so much opportunity, and she just wouldn't have it. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, if you would, another great example, the example of Noah. Now, according to Genesis 6 and verse 3, Noah built his church. He built his ark. He built his ministry for 120 years. Now, that's a pretty long uh, ministry, I will tell you. I've been going around here for quite a bit, but not 120 years. Verse 20, which sometimes were disobedient. God said people were so disobedient to God. When once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few. <laughs> I think you ought to put the word few like, uh yeah. 120 years, and all that was saved were eight people. Eight people in 120 years, I think we could say God's pretty patient. I mean, at the beginning, God could have said, why do I waste all this time running the world, giving these people food, all all these people that live, only so that they will reject me? Eight souls were saved. And God says that Noah obeyed God, always putting God's sovereign plan day after day. God just kept using Noah and he kept doing the right thing day after day, putting one foot in front of the other. You'd say, what is my job? Just put one foot in front of the other because God is working a sovereign plan and he patiently keeps working with people. Thank God we can believe that God does that. Number three. Not only does God's patience characterize his wonderful love and it controls, thank God, his sovereign plan, but his patience displays his amazing grace. You talk about an amazing display, an incredible display of grace. Just think about the the long suffering of God. Look at verse nine. The Lord is not slack. The word is slow. The Lord is not slow. Now, there are three major calendars in use today in the world the Gregorian calendar based on the uh, uh, from Rome and which we use there is the Islamic calendar and then there is the Asian calendar there are three major calendars there's more calendars but those are the three that are most used but God doesn't go by any one of those he has his own calendar and he has his own clocks and God is never slow I love what sister uh, Billy K. Sika used to say, God may be slow, but he's always right on time. (laughs) He's always right on time. No, he's an 11th hour God. He is not slow. Folks, God's not slow. Now, we may think he's slow, but he doesn't go by our calendar. He goes by his own. He's not slow concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. That's just because you have the wrong calendar, the wrong calendar. Timepiece, but is long suffering. The reason God doesn't just throw bolts of lightning down at us is because God is patient. Why? Not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Folks, everybody gets a chance to receive Christ, but that all should come to repentance. They have to repent. Nobody gets saved without repenting. You can't get just saved automatically or because your parents were or because you'd like to be. No, you have to repent. You have to say, God, I was a, I'm a sinner. I ask you, Jesus, to wash away my sins. God loves us, and he wants us to repent. And, but we need to know that there's going to come a day when that repentance can no longer happen because we die. Verse 10, the day of the Lord is going to come. But the day of the Lord will come. So remember that even though God is not willing that any should perish, the day of the Lord's gonna come. And then you won't have a chance to repent. Folks, aren't we glad that God repent? That God waited for us? God cares about people. That's what the apostle Paul said. Look at 1 Timothy 1, verse 16. Paul said, you wanna talk about God's patience? <laughs> Just look at my life. Just, just remember what kind of a guy I was. Look what he said. Howbeit, 1 Timothy 1 howbeit, for this cause I obtained the mercy of God. If you want a prime example of God's mercy and his patience, that in me first, Jesus Christ, here's this phrase again, might show forth all long suffering, macrothumio, long, big heat. God just slow to get to a hot for the pattern to them, which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. What is it that motivates the grace of God? It's his patience because he has patience. He's loving because he has love. He's patient because God is patient. He has amazing grace in Jonah chapter four. What a great story. In Jonah chapter 4, we have the story of a Hebrew preacher, a preacher who didn't like people. (laughs) That's not really an easy thing to do when you're in the ministry, which is a people business, but he didn't like people. And he especially didn't like the Ninevites. They were a group that was not easy to like. History still records that the Ninevites were perhaps the most ruthless people that ever lived on the face of the earth. The Assyrians would flay people alive and just slowly let them die. They were a vile, godless, pagan group, and they especially hated the Jews. And so when God told Jonah to go to the Ninevites and preach that God would forgive them, he said, I am not interested in any ministry to the Assyrians and we know the rest of the story. God had to swallow him up by a big old fish. And then he kind of got things figured out. And so then he went there and he preached. And he told them all. He said, God will forgive you if you'll repent. But I hope you don't. I hope you all go to hell. But anyways, I hope that all of you uh, will, take, will take God into your life. I'm not really. But anyway. Um, and that's the way he was. I mean, he was a... Uh, He was a backslidden preacher. And God used his faithfulness. He didn't use his attitude, but he sure used his obedience to the word. Jonah preached, and then God did a great thing. In fact, the greatest revival recorded in history, everybody in Nineveh got saved. Everybody. Everybody. (laughs) I mean, you talk about revival. And, uh, well, that just ticked off. Jonah and look at chapter 4 and verse 2 he went and had a little time with the Lord and he prayed and said I pray thee oh Lord was not this my saying when I came yet in my country I told you I told you I didn't want to go there I am this is, this, this is driving me crazy therefore I fled unto, he's still defending his stupid actions but anyway hard to believe in it because now listen to what he says because i knew that you were a gracious god merciful and slow to anger there's that phrase again because you're a patient god i just knew you'd forgive those people i just knew it and i can't stand the thought of that your great kindness that I, I just amazes me. Is God patient with us? Yes, God is patient Absolutely. with people. One author said that grace is a gift that costs everything for the giver and nothing for the recipient. Four qualities of God's patience. His patience characterizes His wonderful love. His controls His sovereign plan. It displays His amazing grace. And then finally, it inspires His great example. This is really what it comes down to, verse 11. If God is patient with people, then maybe I ought to be patient with people. Look at verse 11. Seeing then, remember when you have a then, that's that's one of those transitional words. This is a word that's meaning there was something before this. If then, there's something before this then, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, look around, folks everything you see is going to be poof gone. Your house that you're so interested in, your job, your, your clothes, your name, your title, your whatever, just know this, poof, it's going to be gone. But people, the souls of people are eternal. They are never dying. I think maybe you ought to be a little more patient with people Look around you because everything's going to be gone but the souls of people. What manner of persons are you to be in light of all these, in light of the plan of God, the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of God's long-suffering? What manner of persons ought you to be? Your manners need to change, God said. In all holy conversation lifestyle, your lifestyle should be godly. Because God cares about people. Patiently, patiently, God waits for people. Day after day, month after month, decade after decade, God waits for people. I mean, there are people who get saved in their dying breath in their 90s. There are others who serve God. They serve themselves for years and then serve God at the end. Now, just as a little... uh, a little test here for all of us. Think about somebody, it doesn't have to be somebody you actually even know, but think about somebody who perhaps uh, just is annoying, uh, even maddening to you. In fact, somebody who frankly, you just kind of detest. <laughs> think about, it could be somebody you know and nobody in this room I know, but uh, I mean, think about somebody that just as does that to you. Now I want you to stop for a minute and know this. Do you got them? I don't want you to get bitter, just just think about it in a big way. God wants them to be in heaven. God loves them. Now, in our personal level, like Jonah, we just don't like them. On a human level, it's just difficult for us. But in a spiritual level, God said, you need to be godly and realize that the best thing that could happen is what they get saved. Now, God doesn't say we're supposed to like what they're doing. God doesn't say we're supposed to enable what they're doing. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, you need to know, don't write them off that God can't save them. Because God works on those people to the very end. Unless, if they're a vessel of dishonor, then that's what they've done on their own. Look what he uh, reminded Pastor Tim's mentor, Paul, reminded him in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2. Preach the word brother, young brother, preach the word. Just keep preaching the word when it's convenient in season and when it's inconvenient. It's not always convenient, but I want you to lovingly preach the word. Sometimes uh, you have to reprove them. That means you have to counsel them. Sometimes it has to even be a little bit more short than that, a rebuke. Exhort with all what? Long-suffering and doctrine. Get your facts straight. Be a Bible Christian and then lovingly, lovingly, lovingly tell them. Why? Because the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And my friend, that time is now. That time is now where we have turned from a nation that has godly principles to a mob justice that is viciously attacking anything straight, anything moral, anything biblical. Christian celebrities, ones who are trying to serve the Lord, like Chris Pratt, who's a Hollywood actor, got criticized and was drugged through the mud, all because he simply attended a church that had a biblical view of marriage. Just because he went to a church that believed the Bible hard to believe, but God is reminding us that we need to be stewards of truth. That's what the Old Testament prophet said in Isaiah chapter 59. He said, truth has fallen in the streets. And that's why we've said back in December when we opened up, why are we open? Why are we uh, here? Because there is no greater need than to get out the truth. The truth is, Of God. Truth has fallen in the streets. There is no other place other than homes where you can get the truth for the most part. A few Christian schools, thank God for some wonderful homes that believe the Bible, but you're not going to get it in the secular world, not going to get it in business, not going to get it in clubs. The only place where you will hear truth consistently, week after week, is in a Bible believing local church. You'd say well i get my church off of the internet i'm grateful for that i'm thankful for all of you that listen but you need to know there's coming a day when you won't get that they will shut down the internet to any preaching like this i promise you it's coming you're gonna have to be in person you need to you need to get here somehow some way and figure out a way i'm just telling all of us they will because truth has fallen in the streets. And that's why it is our responsibility to, with all long-suffering, keep, as Paul said, keep rebuking and reproving. That's not a, Those aren't harsh words. Those are loving words. Just with all patience and long-suffering, our job is to live the Bible. That's my job today. My job is to love the Bible and to speak the Bible and to sing the Bible and to write the Bible. That is my job, whether I'm talking to one or a thousand, whether in person or online, that's, you'd say, well, what is your life all about? Someone the other day, it's the first time anybody ever asked me, I, we were visiting in, in Nevada and someone found out we lived in California and they said, are you moving? I said, am I moving? And they said, yeah, are you moving? Everybody's moving. And, uh, that we were known to them as being conservative people, I guess, from what they had heard us talking about. Anyway, they said, are you moving? I said, we're not moving. They said, why? I said, because God has called us to where we're at. We are to be a light in the darkness. I mean, God has called us here. Truth has fallen in the streets. Have everybody moved? We're going to talk about that tonight as we start the book of Ruth. I mean, who would have imagined that a would move 1,800 miles away to help his family? It didn't work out for a and it won't likely work out for you unless it's God's calling on your life. But folks, we need to be there to long suffering and patiently give the truth. Author Paul Stanley, told a story from his military experience that illustrates this powerful truth, I think, about God. And he does so in just a a refreshing and poignant way. It's about a time when he was in Vietnam. Let me read it to you. Take just a moment. As an infantry company commander in Vietnam in 1967, I saw Viet Cong soldiers surrender many times. As they were placed in custody, marched away, and briefly interrogated, their body language and facial expressions always caught my attention. Most hung their head in shame, staring to the ground, unwilling to look their captors in the eye, but some stood erect, staring defiantly at those around them, resisting any attempt by our men to control them. They had surrendered physically, but not mentally. On one occasion, after the v- the enemy had withdrawn, I came upon several soldiers surrounding a wounded Viet Cong. shot through the lower leg. He was hostile and frightened, helpless. He threw mud, kicked with his one good leg when anybody even came near him. When I joined the circle around the wounded enemy, one of the soldiers asked me, sir, what do we do? He's losing blood flask and needs a medical attention. I looked down at the struggle in Viet Cong and saw the face of a 16 year old boy. I unbuckled my pistol belt and hand grenades so he could not grab them. Then speaking gently, I moved towards him. He steer, stared fearfully as me as I knelt down, but he allowed me to slide my arms un- under him and pick him up. As I walked with him towards a waiting helicopter, He began to cry and hold me tight. He kept looking at me, squeezing me tighter. We climbed into the helicopter, and we took off. During the ride, our young captor sat on the floor, clinging to my leg, never having ridden in a helicopter. He looked out with panic as we gained altitude and flew over the trees. And then he fixed his eyes back on me, and I smiled reassuringly and put my hand on his shoulder. After landing, I picked him up, And walked him towards the medical tent. And as we crossed the field, I felt the tenseness leave his body and his tight grasp loosen. His eyes softened, and his head leaned against my chest. The fear and the resistance were gone. He had finally surrendered. And my friend, that is the way it is with us and God. At first, we see God and. We look at him, and he's the enemy. Oh, why would you come at me with all your rules and all your ideas? We claim our own territory and the right to our own lives. And then in our brokenness and in our woundedness, we surrender to him and realize that he is not our enemy. And as he takes us captive, we thank God for a patient, patient God. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.